0: Hey, everyone, welcome back for our start of Unit 4 through Chapter 9, which is Motivation and Emotion. We're going to be looking at why we do some of the things we do and how our emotions play a role in making decisions. Before we do that, let's take a mindful moment to settle ourselves before we get started. Let's find a comfortable posture or a decent posture, depending on what task you're doing. Set aside some mental space to check in with yourself. We're going to start with a deep cleansing breath in. And out. Good. As you're in this still quieted space, check in with yourself physically. How are you? Any spots of soreness or tension? Are you feeling loose and flexible today? What might you need to do to meet your needs? Give yourself permission to notice those and attend to them later. Check in with your emotions. Are you feeling really anxious and tense as we're nearing the midway of the semester? We're already through the midway of the semester at this point. Check in with your emotions. Are you feeling anxious and tense? Or are you feeling calm, relaxed? Are you feeling angry or sad? Notice your feelings and give yourself permission to tend to them later. Now notice your thoughts. Are your thoughts racing? Is it hard to focus? Or is your mind clear, ready to learn? And finally, check in with your spiritual sense of self, whatever that may be. Are you feeling connected to your concept of spirituality? What might you need to do to renew that or strengthen it? Notice it and give yourself permission to tend to it. As you take three more deep cleansing breaths, consider if you need to meet any of those needs now so you can focus on what you're doing and have an improved day, or if there are things that you can get to later when you have more time or some privacy to get to them. Take the time and the space you need. You're welcome to pause this before you jump back in. Allow yourself to be prepared before you jump in today. What are things that motivate us? Why is it that some people seem content to just let life totally pass them by and other people seem like they have this unending energy and internal drive to get something done? Well, that's motivation. And there's two different types, intrinsic and extrinsic. Breaking down those words, intrinsic, the first two letters are I-N, in. It's inside of you. Anything intrinsic is something that exists within yourself. Intrinsic motivation is where we perform an action because the act itself is rewarding or satisfying in some internal manner. It makes you feel good for doing that. This is why people volunteer, or maybe they work in jobs that they find fulfilling but pay very little. They're getting a lot of intrinsic motivation. There's intrinsic value in that for them. And the opposite is extrinsic. The first two letters, EX, think of exit, external. It's outside of yourself. This is a type of motivation in which a person performs an action because it leads to an outcome that is separate from or external to the person. When I do my job, I get paid. If my motivation is simply to get that money, The money is my external motivation. I may hate that job, but be willing to do it because the pay is really good. I have no intrinsic motivation for that job. I have lots of extrinsic motivation. There are some early approaches to understanding motivation, so let's take it back in our history timeline here. Researchers and theorists began the serious study of emotion almost as soon as psychology became its own recognized field of study. And, like usual, in the early days, we get some things right and we get some things wrong. And as the decades have gone by, some approaches have fallen out of favor. We don't think very much of them anymore. Some have been modified, and we have some new ideas. In 1809, William McDougall proposed 18 instincts for humans. Instincts are biologically determined and innate patterns of behavior that exist in both people and animals. We talk about animal instincts a lot or primal instincts. You're just trying to get your basic needs met. Well, McDougall thought there were 18 instincts. And they include curiosity, flight or running away, pugnacity or aggressiveness, and acquisition, or gathering possessions. Now, As the years have gone by, psychologists have actually added more and more instincts to the list until there were thousands. That makes it kind of hard to understand it or to really grasp it if we have thousands of instincts we're trying to work with. But none of the early theorists did much more than just give names to those instincts. And even though there were plenty of descriptions such as Submissive people possess the instinct of submission. Really? Submissive people possess the instinct of submission? That's some pretty weak science, and there was no attempt to explain why these instincts appear in people. What we do know is that we appear to be motivated by some of these innate patterns of behavior, by these instincts. The instinct approaches have really faded away because there wasn't enough work given to them and because it came, became too complicated with thousands of different instincts, we needed something that was a little more comprehensive, something that could capture the human experience a little more quickly instead of breaking it down into thousands of different little tiny things. Intro, drive reduction theory. There's a need and a drive. The need is the requirement of material, like food or water, in order to survive. And we have a drive. The need leads to psychological tension and physical arousal. Remember, arousal in psychology does not always mean sexual arousal. It means that we're giving energy and attention to something that we need. We're paying attention to it. So, I am out hiking and I have run out of water. I have a need. Water. And the greater that need becomes, the greater my drive, the greater my tension around not having water and needing to get some becomes. Now, if that drive becomes so strong and that need becomes so great and I haven't been able to meet it, I might be willing to make some compromises to my safety in order to satiate that need, in order to fulfill it. So drive reduction theory states that we act to satisfy the need and reduce the tension. Once I get some water, that drive goes away. I no longer am focused on getting water. We have two different types of drives according to drive reduction theory, primary and acquired. Primary drives involve the needs of the body. Food, water, shelter, air. Acquired drives are learned through experience. I have learned to need money. I have learned to need a car that can get me places. I have learned to need a house that looks a certain way so people want to come over and spend time with me. I've acquired those, I've learned them through experience. And in drive reduction theory, we're seeking to end that tension between the need and the drive. We're seeking to return to homeostasis. That's your body's ideal baseline of functioning. So that's what we're always trying to get back to. And it's part of why in psychology, the answer is usually maybe both. Sometimes I'm not sure I need more information because we're trying to get back to this ideal baseline. So an example. You have increased hunger, so the need is to eat. You do so. You satiate the need. Congratulations. Your glucose is raised. Your hunger is diminished. You no longer have the physical sensation of hunger. And your blood glucose also goes down. When your blood glucose gets low enough, you start to feel hungry again. And the cycle continues and continues and continues. So the race to get to homeostasis is always happening. We're always trying to get back to this baseline. So this need intention that we experience, it happens all the time in different ways. And it happens with our primary needs and our acquired needs. And everyone has different needs. So we've talked about the baseline needs, food, water, air, shelter, but we have psychological needs, need for affiliation, This is the need for social interaction and to be held in high regard by others. We want to be accepted. We want to be part of the pack. We want to belong. And we have drives around that need. Some of us experience a need for power, a need to control or to influence others. That need has a drive. How is that need met? When does the tension go away? And especially in terms of power, Is it kind of like hunger? Is it just going to come back in a different way or come back with more intensity the next time? Is it ever enough? And the same can be said in our need for achievement, our desire to attain realistic and challenging goals. We all have realistic goals like make it to the weekend or make it to dinner tonight. Uh, But we also have some more challenging goals where it's going to take more time, more effort, more attention. And maybe those challenging goals aren't actually going to be met. Maybe it's not possible. And when is the satiation of the achievement need enough? For some of us, we achieve one small thing. We make it to Friday. We make it to the weekend. And then we want the next thing. We keep upping the ante each time. But those are the three primary psychological needs that humans experience, affiliation, power, and achievement. We each experience these to different degrees and in different ways, and sometimes we tend to focus more on one than the other. Like we may sacrifice our need for affiliation in order to have more success in our affiliation for power or achievement. Let's look more at the need for achievement and personality. The view of the self in the need for achievement mindset is that you need to believe in your own abilities. The view of self, belief about your own abilities. There tends to be a belief that you have control over your life. And if you have control over your life, then you can control the outcome. And thus, you are able to achieve more because you have what's called an internal locus of control. I'm in charge. I'm in power. This is where we may see people who don't really want to believe in a higher power or have a lot of faith in the government um, or faith that some family member or friend is going to pull through for them. When we're focused on our need for achievement, our personality type tends to be more internal locus of control. Locus means the center of. So the center of control is within me. I have it. For folks who have a high need for achievement, their beliefs around intelligence are either fixed or changeable. With fixed beliefs around intelligence, people tend to believe that you have what you have. There's an external locus of control when faced with difficulty, which can lead people to give up easily or avoid situations in which they might fail. So, they oftentimes, according to the self fulfilling prophecy, will end up failing in the process because they believe it's going to happen. They're prone to developing learned helplessness, the tendency to stop trying to achieve because of a past failure. And they may start focusing more on looking smart rather than trying to outperform the others. So with fixed intelligence beliefs and our high need for achievement, we tend to not take risks. We tend to not take on challenges because... That fear of failure and what it might mean about us is so high. When we have a more changeable perspective of intelligence, then we are able to take some risks and have some experiences in maybe small increments or small steps. These people tend to show an internal locus of control, believing in both their own actions that will help with the situation, that their efforts will be valuable in trying to overcome the challenge, and that there are some external factors that can become of use, that can be available to be supportive. With changeable beliefs about intelligence and our high need for a fill achievement, dang it. For folks who have a high need for achievement, their beliefs around intelligence are either fixed or changeable. With fixed beliefs around intelligence, people tend to believe that you have what you have. There's an external locus of control when faced with difficulty, which can lead people to give up easily or avoid situations in which they might fail. So they, oftentimes, according to the self-fulfilling prophecy, will end up failing in the process because they believe it's going to happen. They're prone to developing learned helplessness, the tendency to stop trying to achieve because of a past failure. And they may start focusing more on looking smart rather than trying to outperform the others. So with fixed intelligence beliefs and our high need for achievement, we tend to not take risks. We tend to not take on challenges because... That fear of failure and what it might mean about us is so high. Individuals with a high need for achievement who have changeable beliefs about intelligence tend to take risks and try new things in small increments. There's a more internal locus of control, believing that the qualities, characteristics, and skills that you already have are what's going to be beneficial to your success. It's also possible that the acquisition of new skills will lead to continued gains or continued benefits. As long as you can take it in and have it be an internal control source for you, then it could be beneficial to you. They work at developing new strategies and getting involved in new tasks with a goal of increasing their smarts and are motivated to master tasks without allowing the fear of failure to destroy their confidence. Another way of looking at motivation and why we do what we do is through arousal theory. The first thing is that we need stimulation. A stimulus motive is one that appears to be unlearned, but it causes an increase in stimulation. This can be curiosity, playing, or exploration. But sometimes our motives for doing things involve the rewards or incentives we get when we act such as eating food even when we're not hungry, just because it tastes so good. That's an example of learned behavior. In arousal theory, people are said to have an optimal or a best or ideal level of tension. Task performances, for example, might suffer if the level of arousal is too high. Like if you have severe test anxiety, the stakes are too high, the tension's too high, you're your own worst enemy and you end up not doing so great on the test. And our performance tends to suffer if the arousal is too low, if it's too easy. For many kinds of tasks, a moderate level of arousal seems to be best. This is best explained with the Yerkes' Dodson Law, which states that when tasks are simple, a higher level of arousal leads to better performance. When tasks are difficult, Lower levels of arousal lead to better performance. So let's look at that. When tasks are simple, a higher level of tension leads to better performance. If I made this class too easy, you may not actually do the work. And you may end up getting a bad grade even though the class was designed to be really easy. So the class has to be just hard enough, just challenging enough, for you to pay attention, to listen to the lectures, review the slides, read the book, do the comp checks, blah, blah, blah. There has to be just enough stress or just enough tension for you to pay attention, for you to want to do things in this class. It also has to be interesting enough. But if it's too stressful or if I give you too much information and it's overwhelming, then you're also going to do poorly. So it needs to be moderate. If this class was designed to be really hard, like a doctorate level psychology class, then a low level of tension would be better. You would do better. If it was a doctorate level class, the stakes are really high, but you have a super chill, awesome teacher who's gonna help you along the way. Then you would do better. Maintaining an optimal level of arousal might involve reducing tension or creating it, depending on the situation. So an example, husbands or wives who are under aroused may pick a fight with their spouse. They're just trying to get something going, trying to change things up. It's gotten too low stimulating. It's not really doing anything. Students who experience test anxiety, which is a high level of arousal, may seek out ways to reduce anxiety to improve their test performance. And students who are not anxious at all, may not be motivated to study, so then they end up not doing so great on the test because they didn't study at all. Again, balance. Having a moderate level of stress or tension is where we tend to do best. We need a little bit of stress in our lives to give us that kick in the pants to actually get up and do something. What about the extremes? What about sensation-seeking? So even though most of us need a moderate level of arousal to feel pretty content with our lives, some people just seem like they can't get enough of that high-risk, high-intensity stuff. What's that about? These are sensation seekers. They seem to need more complex and varied sensory experiences. But it doesn't necessarily have to involve danger. We tend to make that assumption because those are the people that make the news. Uh, This is where people may choose to go skydiving if they need to like shake things up. A sensation seeker might become a skydiving master or they might be like a skydiving instructor. One of my friends was is a bit of a sensation seeker and he was actually a skydiving photographer. So when people would go do their like big 30th birthday skydiving, bachelorette party, extravaganza things, he would be the photographer in the sky with them. So it was just different enough, just arousing enough that he was getting his needs met as a sensation seeker. But again, it does not always involve danger. It does not always involve risky activities. Sometimes traveling. We can't do that right now with COVID-19. So all of us who are a bit of sensation seekers are really struggling. But the traveling, just going somewhere new, trying something different, that little bit of tension of, What if something happens while I'm gone? What if my hotel reservation gets canceled? Or there's an issue with my flight or my luggage gets lost. Those little bits of added stress and tension are what make things exciting. And then getting to see new places and have new experiences, that's also part of the equation. Sensation seeking might be related to temperament. Remember temperament from our last chapter, whether you have an easygoing temperament, difficult to engage, or you need time to warm up and engage with somebody. You might remember back from chapter two when we were talking about the amygdala, that little almond-shaped part of your brain that regulates fear. I mentioned someone by the name of Alex Honnold. He's a world-famous rock climber, and he has a hypoactive amygdala. It doesn't think things are dangerous in the same way that other people do. He doesn't get afraid. The same way other people get afraid, so he's able to go climb these massive three thousand foot granite walls in Yosemite National Park, and be a little bit scared, whereas some of us might be ten feet off the ground crying for our parents. Uh, But so temperament, Alex Honnold has a different temperament than the rest of us do. He has kind of a unique temperament. He might be a little slower to engage, a little slower to warm up, and that might lead into a bit of his sensation-seeking. He's not seeking a fear experience because he doesn't feel a lot of fear when he's doing these things, but he's seeking that tension. Everything has to go just right in order for this to be successful. That's the part that's the draw for him. What is interesting about risk behavior, risk-taking behaviors, and sensation-seeking If we're by ourselves doing something like Alex Honnold just goes climbing by himself. He does. It's called soloing. He's by himself Uh, when he's by himself. You know, he's not taking a lot of risks. Psychology indicates that when we're in a group, our willingness to take risky choices, risky chances and engage in some risk behaviors, it goes way up, especially amongst adolescents. So you may have a teenager sitting at home, not doing a whole lot. And you're like, oh, they're just a couch potato. But the second their phone bings and they're invited to go do something kind of stupid, all of a sudden they're riled up and they're engaged. They're aroused and they're really willing to participate in whatever risky behavior it is. Could be drugs, alcohol, hood surfing on a car. Teenagers are creative. They come up with all sorts of things. Had they not been in a group or had they not been invited to do that, they probably wouldn't have done it. It's when we get into a group that our mentality changes dramatically. And we'll get to explore that more in chapter 12 when we talk about social psychology. Another approach to understanding motivation is incentive. What's in it for me? What do I get out of this? Incentive approaches are where behavior is explained in terms of the external stimulus and its rewarding properties. The thing that's outside stimulating us to do something and whatever rewarding property is associated with that. Incentives are things that lure people into action. A great incentive is money. I've used paychecks as a big example, but here's another very real-life example. Research studies. It is very hard to find people to participate in research studies. Even to do a 10-question survey, it's sometimes hard to get people to actually do it because it feels like it's a bother or it's just another thing to do and no one wants to do it. But you offer someone a $5 Amazon card to do a 10-question survey, magically research participants appear and they're all willing to help. So an incentive is anything that lures somebody to action. It can also be something like ice cream, t-shirts, sign up for this service and you get a free little tote bag. There's all sorts of little gimmicky incentives to try and get us to do things. Another big one is conceptual. It's more abstract. Freedom is a great incentive. If you get your license, you have the freedom to drive, to go out into the world by yourself. This is the same with policy change. This law gets passed. These people have freedom. That's an incentive that some of us have in trying to get certain policies enacted or changed. With incentive approaches, behavior is the response to the rewards of the external stimulus. I do the thing. I get what I want. Another great way to understand motivation is through humanistic approaches. And it brings us back to our good friends, Maslow and Rogers with self-actualization and peak experiences. You might remember this from way back in chapter one. Remember Maslow's hierarchy of needs, hierarchy of needs? It's that pyramid shape where we have to meet the levels on the bottom in sequence in order to reach the levels on the top. So we start with basic needs, and hopefully we ascend all the way up to self-actualization. The lower needs have been satisfied. Full human potential has been achieved. It is this crowning moment in our existence when we reach self-actualization. And the reality is that these are short-lived. It's not like you reach the peak of the mountain and you stay there forever. You go up to the mountain peak, you have that self-actualization experience, and then it ends. Life is a constant chase after homeostasis. We have to go back and meet our basic needs or meet our cognitive needs or our attachment needs. They don't just stop once we fulfill them once. We're more complex than that. So self-actualization is the full human potential and peak experiences are those brief times when we actually achieve that. Sometimes the way that we believe this works is when we go up there to that peak moment and we stay there, we stay on that peak. And so that's a motivation for people is they want to have that fully actualized experience. They want to be their fullest, best selves, and they think that's the place to do it that's where it happens. So their motivation is constant pursuit of self-actualization. There are some problems with this theory. You may have noticed some of them already. Maslow's work was based on Americans. So being able to generalize motivation cross-culturally Does not really work in Maslow's theory, and it probably doesn't work in many of our theories. There's also very little scientific support for Maslow's theory. Had there been any scientific support, the lack of cross cultural consideration probably would have been brought up. All of his theories were based on personal observations of people rather than empirically gathered observations or research. So, kind of like Freud, it's really who you know and who you're around, and then you use that to build a whole theory of humanity off of. It sounds a little sketchy. I kind of liked Vygotsky's style more, where he would go out to different areas and really observe people in their natural habitat, rather than taking a few groups of people that he happens to have access to and, again, developing a whole theory about humanity based off of that. And even though the base of Maslow's pyramid is to satisfy hunger and thirst, most of his participants in his observational studies have never actually experienced starvation. So asking them questions around starvation was kind of a mute point because they've never experienced it. So how can they really report on what it was like or the process of moving from that immediate baseline of physiological needs to safety? There have been many cases throughout history where artists and scientists and other people have denied their own physical needs in order to focus on a more self-actualizing need their painting or their study, whatever it is that they were more focused on. And I think I've mentioned this in this lecture series before, but belongingness and love needs are in the middle of the pyramid. I think a lot of people would actually put that at the bottom. And Harlow's monkeys actually exhibited that in the study we talked about in our last chapter with attachment. They opted for the mom who could not offer them any food, but offered them comfort, a sense of attachment, of belonging. Similar to Maslow's hierarchy of needs in the humanistic theory of motivation is self-determination theory. This one was developed by Edward Deci and Richard Ryan. And in this theory, there are three inborn and universal needs that help people gain a complete, whole sense of self, healthy relationship, and community with others. The three needs are autonomy, or the need to be in control of your own behavior and goals, otherwise known as self-determination. Competency, feeling a sense of mastery in life. And relatedness, feeling a sense of belonging. Ryan and Desi believe that satisfying these needs is best accomplished if the person has a supportive environment in which to develop goals and relationships with others. Such satisfaction will not foster healthy psychological growth, but will also increase the individual's intrinsic motivation. Similar to Maslow's hierarchy of needs in our humanistic understanding of human motivation comes self-determination theory. This was developed by Ryan and Desi. And self-determination theory states that there are three things that we need that are inborn and we have within us, the three things that we need to fulfill in order to achieve self-actualization. So self-determination theory states that the social context of action has an effect on the type of motivation. And the three things that we need are autonomy, competence, and relatedness. Autonomy is where we have control over our own behaviors and goals that intrinsic motivate shoot Autonomy is where we have control over our own behaviors and goals that intrinsic locus of control is at play here In competency we need to be the master of challenging tasks feeling a sense of mastery in our lives and with relatedness we need to feel a sense of belonging, to have relationships with other people. Now Ryan and Desi believe that these needs are best accomplished if we have a supportive environment in which to develop healthy goals and relationships with others. Satisfaction not only fosters healthy psychological growth, but it also increases the individual's intrinsic motivations. Actions are performed because they are internally rewarding or satisfying. Now, some previous research has found a negative impact on intrinsic motivation when an external reward is given for the performance. So when the task itself is interesting to the person, then the internal reward of completing an interesting task might be negated because of a grade that's involved. So let's say with our annotated bibliography paper, Let's say you have a topic that you are really interested in and you're excited to do some research about it to learn more. That's intrinsic motivation. You want to do the assignment because it will help you learn more about something that's interesting to you. The fact that a decent chunk of your grade is tied to that might negate the intrinsic motivation you're already feeling. Now your motivation is just to do the assignment correctly to get the good grade. The intrinsic motivation of acquiring knowledge has gone away, potentially, because of the external motivation of the grade that you want or need to get. You might be thinking, well, why can't I have both? Why can't I get good grades, have that be a motivator, and have the motivation of gaining knowledge? Why can't it be both? Well, you are thinking like a psychologist. Oftentimes, the answer is somewhere in the middle. We as human beings are far too complicated to be all this or all that. We are usually somewhere in the middle. And there's usually elements of intrinsic and extrinsic motivation in everything that we do. Yes, I get paid to sit here and record this lecture for you to listen to. I also really enjoy teaching and I'm really excited to share my knowledge about this field with you. I'm experiencing intrinsic and extrinsic motivation for this task. But how universal are those three needs that self-determination theory identified? Some cultures such as the US and Great Britain are highly individualistic. It's all about the self. They stress the needs of the individual over the group independence, and self-reliance. Other cultures, most other cultures, are more collectivistic, like Japan and China, and they stress strong social ties, interdependence, and cooperation. So I wonder what they would say to our ideals of autonomy and competency. They would probably agree with us on relatedness, that we need each other, There is a whole theory that's based in some rich uh, religious theology. It comes out of Africa, and it's called Ubuntu. And the whole premise of Ubuntu is, I cannot be me without you. You are such an integral part of my existence and my very being that if you were to be removed from it, I cannot be my real self. I cannot be me without you. Cross-cultural research indicates that even across different cultures, needs for autonomy, mastery, and belongingness are somewhat similar in importance. So maybe different cultures have different ways that those things play out. And maybe the autonomy piece, having that intrinsic locus of control, is somewhat prevalent or persistent. Um, but I, my guess would be, my educated guess, is that Of those three, autonomy, competency, and relatedness, that relatedness would be the strongest cross-culturally compared with its other two. Now, it's probably no surprise to you to hear that food plays a significant role in our motivation. Did any of you wonder why you went through your quarantine snacks so fast? Or when you're trying to study and get something done, it seems like you are just uncontrollably hungry. You'll just keep eating non-stop. Well, that is because there is actually a hormonal and neurological reason for hunger. Let's look first at the physiological and social components of hunger. One of our hormones is insulin. This is a hormone that is secreted by the pancreas and it reduces glucose in order to control the level of fats, proteins, and carbohydrates in your body. Another hormone is glucagon. This is another hormone secreted by the pancreas, and it increases glucose to control the levels of fats, proteins, and carbohydrates. So insulin brings it down, glucagon brings it up. If you are or have any friends or family members who are diabetic, you are probably somewhat familiar with these terms. Being a diabetic myself, I have type 1 diabetes. Insulin and glucagon are part of my everyday vocabulary. When I want to eat food, I take some insulin so my blood sugar does not go too high. And if my blood sugar is too high, I take some insulin in order to bring it down. Now let's say my blood sugar is low. That's dangerous. So I take glucagon artificial glucagon in order to increase my blood sugar so I'm back in safety. If you are not diabetic, your body does this naturally. And congratulations to you because when you have to do it manually yourself, it is not fun. Well, regardless of whether you have this as an automatic response or you have to do it yourself like me, insulin brings your blood sugar down. It reduces glucose to control the levels of fats, proteins, and carbohydrates and glucagon increases it. It brings up the level of fats, proteins, and carbohydrates. This is where leptin comes in. Leptin is another hormone secreted by the pancreas, and it seems to control your appetite. What's interesting is that genetic abnormalities in leptin receptors are linked to obesity. This makes sense when you break it down, that if your leptin receptors are not working correctly, they're not perceiving the correct amount of leptin, then there is going to be an increase in hunger. Seeing here that there is a genetic quality to it, a heritable trait to it, we can have an understanding that obesity is not always just a series of life choices there are genetic and hormonal components to obesity that are sometimes outside of a person's control. And what does the hypothalamus have to do with all of this? Well, remember that the hypothalamus is the puppeteer of the pituitary gland. So the hypothalamus is really the puppet master controlling all of your hormones. And that can have an impact on your hunger, as we just learned, because... Three major hormones, glucagon, insulin, and leptin, are involved in our sensation and perception of hunger. So a close cousin of the hypothalamus is the ventromedial hypothalamus, ventromedial hypothalamus. This may be involved in getting us to stop eating when our glucose level goes up. The ventromedial hypothalamus may be involved in stopping eating when our glucose level goes up. So your glucose level rises as you consume food. And if it rises too high, then your body experiences some detrimental things that we won't get into in this class. But high blood sugar equals bad. So insulin tries to bring it down and the ventromedial hypothalamus says, hey, stop eating. Our glucose levels are up. We're okay now. We can stop. On the flip side, the lateral hypothalamus appears to influence the onset of eating when our insulin levels go up. So remember, insulin's job is to bring it down. Let's say it's going too far down. Your body, that lateral hypothalamus, is then going to influence that sensation that you need to eat, that you are hungry. It says, hey, we have too much insulin. Our blood sugar is going too low. It's time to eat something. And that's when you feel hungry or hangry, little hungry and angry. There's some other factors that influence the hormonal levels in your body, which can impact your motivation. We know hunger is a big motivator. It's one of our baseline needs. So understanding it on this hormonal level helps us to understand how it functions and impacts our body, our body, and our brain. So it impacts our motivation and it certainly impacts our emotions. Our weight set point is the level of weight our body tries to maintain. And our basal metabolic rate, or BMR, is the rate at which our body burns energy when resting. So depending on what these kind of internal settings are, that's gonna be linked to the lateral hypothalamus and the ventromedial hypothalamus. They're all working together. Hunger is actually a pretty complicated response in the body when we break it down. All of these things are working together in this very complicated hormonal system that results in us feeling motivated to do or not do something, to eat or not to eat, to exercise, to try and maintain our weight set point, or to lay about on the couch because weight set point has been met. There's also some social components of hunger. There are social cues for when meals are to be eaten in between classes. Not during class, but usually in between classes is when you eat. Usually between 12 o'clock and 2 o'clock in the middle of the day is when people eat lunch. People usually eat a meal or something like a meal first thing in the morning to give themselves that energy boost. And we typically eat dinner between 5 and 7 p.m., sometimes a little bit later. But there are different cues, kind of breaks during the day, or even lulls in our behavior. That afternoon slump where we're all looking for the coffee and the caffeine to try and stay awake, that is a combination of the post-meal kind of food coma that can happen, and that maybe we need to be really mindful about what kind of food we're eating at that time. If you're getting super tired in the afternoon, you may need to modify your lunch meal in order to have the energy you need. And of course, food is very closely related to our cultural customs. Thanksgiving. When I said that word, what was the first thing you thought of? Was it the stories we learned in school about the pilgrims and the Native Americans, or even feeling grateful for what you have? Or was it this massive buffet of food? My first thought was food. Most of us, we hear Thanksgiving, boom, we think of food. Or whatever major holiday or traditions that your culture may have, I would bet that there is a significant food component associated with that. And the anticipation of food may result in an increased insulin response. So even thinking about food seems to kind of trick your brain and body a little bit into needing to produce insulin. Remember, insulin is produced to bring our glucose down. So we've been eating something, our blood sugar is rising, and insulin says, whoop, not so fast, buddy. And it brings it back down. So even just thinking about food can elicit that response, the insulin production response. So let's put some of this together. When you even think about food, your body starts insulin production, which lowers your blood sugar, which in turn makes you feel hungry. So you go seek out food. But why is it that when we're studying or we're stuck inside or feeling just kind of anxious about something that we're driven to food? Well, that's going to take us all the way back to chapter 11 that we did earlier in the semester in thinking about the hypothalamus-pituitary-adrenal axis. When your body perceives stress, your brain and body perceive stress, it activates the pituitary aspect of the HPA axis, involves the production of glutamate. So when we experience stress, the HPA axis is activated, regardless of what that stressor is, and regardless of how conscious we are of that stressor. If the brain perceives stress, HPA axis kicks in. And remember the P, pituitary, that's the hormonal system. And your body produces glutamate, so it can fight, flee, or freeze. Now, you can't really fight, flee, or freeze from coronavirus or from an exam. So your body has to figure out another way to manage the hormones that it's producing. It's going to keep doing this HPA axis activation, regardless of what we do. And oftentimes that comes through, we use that glutamate, that desire, that drive to do something. I have this extra energy. And if that stress never goes away, we keep needing that extra energy. Where do we get energy from? Food. So we eat. This is why it's so easy for us to gain weight when we're stressed out. If we're going through a hard time, a particularly difficult semester, Uh, Right now, it's wildfire season at the time of this recording. There's so many things that elicit that stress response from us that we would be constantly in this state of hunger and seeking out food because our body thinks, I need fuel to respond. When really, what we need is mindfulness to slow down, to kind of reality check. We call that reality testing of walking through the logical steps of what's happening. When you add logic to anxiety, oftentimes the anxiety goes down. So this is where you're starting to kind of feel munchy because you have a big exam coming up. Take a few deep breaths. Take a mindful moment and see if you can get your brain and body back under control in order to avoid that overeating. So there's a pretty clear connection between how food and our whole metabolic and endocrine system influence our motivation. And in our next episode, we'll get to talk about how they influence our emotions. Here we are at the end of part one for chapter nine. We've gone all the way through motivation and in our next episode, we will be talking about the other half of this equation, our emotions. So hopefully you're not too hungry after all of that talk about food and hormones and how that influences our motivation. But I would not be surprised if you have some extra insulin coursing through your bloodstream right now. So take the time to take care of yourself today, and we'll be back here for chapter nine, part two.